now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Hey, everybody. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today and every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and um, in any time in between, because now these uh, shows are podcasted, and, and if, uh, just in case you can't uh, uh, stay with me the full hour, um, you you're always welcome to go and access the archives uh, under the website www.bbsradio.com forward slash and then reclaiming authenticity all one word there and then once you click on that you'll find uh, access links to uh, hopefully things that uh, pique your interest and the archives is certainly one of them so I invite you to go back and listen to episodes that you may have missed and um, as always shoot me an email and let me know your thoughts of uh, uh, you know, what uh, touches you or what you would like to hear more of. I am certainly open uh, to that. So um, if those of you who have been with me for a while, you know that uh, each and every week these broadcasts uh, really focus on the integration of spirituality and our mental health. And it's all placed within the context of our relationships, relationships that we have with ourselves or intra-relationships, or relationships that we have with others, the interpersonal relationships, and with God, or the divine, the universe, and so forth. And um, again, a very good reason why I place this integration in relationships is because we often receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual wounds in relationships. However, we can also discover our greatest healing and strength and peace and forgiveness and love through healthier relationships. So if you want to understand it this way, relationships happen to be the common denominator through everything. And these relationships uh, just might be within our own families, uh, co-workers and, and friends. And it's interesting that, um, as I said, they can cause some uh, deep divisions within families and, and at work or even within our friend group. However, uh, whenever we work on ourselves and whenever we are committed to our own uh, integration of the Spirit, our spirituality and our mental health, uh, we find that the more faithful we are towards integration, uh, the more transformation is going to occur. And so, as I said, just one follows the other. So the more faithful we are with our own integration, um, transformation is inevitable. And uh, ultimately, since uh, we are placed within the context of relationships, we are going to transform others by our grace, our presence, and our understanding. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, our own integration with forgiving ourselves and uh, commitment to kindness and compassion uh, really begins with how we treat ourselves. Uh, because whenever we are compassionate with ourselves, we can become more compassionate with others. And certainly, the more forgiving we are of ourselves, we can then be more forgiving of others. 
and maybe and when we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves, we will then discover how this opens our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. Okay, so all in all, integration and transformation first and foremost begins with us. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or if you want to leave me your comments about today's show, again, I invite you to visit the website, www.bbsradio.com forward slash Reclaiming Authenticity. Okay. Well, uh, for those of you who may be new to the program, I just wanted to say very quickly that uh, I am a firm believer that uh, all of us do come into the world already equipped and graced with everything that we need in this life in terms of our skills, our giftedness, our talents, our strengths, uh, our character traits, so on and so forth. And um, sometimes when we want to share the very best of ourselves with others, it may or may not go well. Uh, perhaps others, you know, as we, we share the very best of ourselves, it's kind of like holding up a mirror to others. And for some, that's just too much. Uh, it's, it's just they, they're not ready to see that kind of transparency in themselves. Or perhaps they are reminded of some painful um, experiences that have, have gone on unresolved in their lives. And so we might hold back a little bit, or we might even push our, our gifts and our skills way down you know, and, and, and hide it so that others cannot see it. Uh, or maybe over time, um, you know, just through the negativity and pessimism of others, or perhaps uh, we were told by others growing up that we would never amount to anything, um, you know, we, that does have an effect on us. You know, if we take that stuff to heart and we just realize that, um, you know, or I should not realize, but uh, perhaps we we try to convince ourselves that there really is nothing special to us, that what other people are saying, well, that must be true, because if they see that in us. But they don't see the whole picture, do they? No, they, they don't. Okay? But it still has an effect on us. Because we often end up going through life functioning from a place of woundedness or victimization instead of a place of healing and wholeness and really embracing our uniqueness, our hachetas. Okay. Well, over the past couple of weeks, I've been reminded of society's messages uh, regarding, um, above all things, how we are shedding tears these days. Okay, that's right, shedding tears. And let's be honest, over the past couple of years with the COVID shutdown and trying to get back to some sort of normalcy, whatever that's supposed to mean, and the number of deaths related to this pandemic um, and just the world the way it is, situations and so forth, we've had a lot to cry about. And rightly so, there is tremendous amount of pain and suffering going on right now. However, there's also a tremendous amount of grace and strength and love to still be expressed. It all depends on where we look, and you know those things often show up when we least expect it. In fact, one of my favorite stories was uh, told to me by a dear friend. Um, it was more like a, a lesson, where uh, you know he just said, "Look, if you're in any in situation, you know, always look for the peace, always look for the grace, always look for the love, always look for the understanding." He said, "You should be able to find it in any any situation." He said, "However, if." And this is a big if. If 
you are looking for those things in any situation and you cannot find any of those things, he said, then you become the peace for the situation. You become the love in the moment. You become the grace. You become what is needed in any given circumstance. And when he had shared that with me, it really just one of those aha moments for me that um, just made a huge, huge impact in my understanding of uh, who I am. And, you know, uh, for the longest time, just going through life as, you know, well, God, show me the grace, show me the peace. And it's almost as if my friend said, look, you don't have to go looking for it because you can become the peace. You can become the grace. You can become the love or the forgiveness or the understanding. Whatever is needed in the moment, you can become those things because those things are already in you. But what's getting in the way? of those aspects, those positive character traits and so forth from coming up. What's keeping those things hidden? What, um, in certain ways of bitterness or unforgiveness, or, or just keeping um, how we not only experience peace and grace, but how then do we become peace and grace for somebody else? So again, we have to continue doing a lot of inner work on ourselves. So, um, again, getting back to, you know, society's perceptions of tears or how people shed their tears. Now, granted, we have come a long way in this area as a society, but we have a long way to go because even when we experience the loss of a loved one or when we are overcome by strong emotions, and it doesn't have to be sorrow or sadness, it can be tears of joy. You know, tears are a natural way our bodies release built-up tension. I mean, uh, in a couple of examples here. Um, anybody remember the song uh, Don't Cry Out Loud by Melissa Manchester? Uh, well, the refrain goes like this, you know, don't cry out loud, just keep it inside and learn how to hide your feelings. Fly high and proud, and if you should fall, remember, you almost had it all. And I remember, probably like you, singing along to a song like this and not even paying any attention to, um, you know, the lyrics and just exactly what was being communicated. And this isn't the only song that talks about hiding one's tears. You know, there's an old quarter flash song uh, entitled Harden My Heart that, that says, I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to swallow my tears. I'm going to turn and leave you here. Okay. And um, on one hand, you know, these subtle messages of, you know, hide your tears or hide your feelings, don't. Don't share with anybody or show anybody what you're really feeling. All that does is tears us up on the inside. It really affects us physically. And the first place it's going to affect, I guarantee you, is going to be your stomach. Somewhere in the digestive system, the digestive tract, it's going to be affected sooner or later. Or the heart. You know, how many um, people have suffered severe heart problems as a result of being unable to express their feelings or hanging on to a bitterness that just slowly starts to 
eat them up or, you know, turn into just rotting them uh, from the inside out. Well, it's interesting, again, you know, society's perceptions of tears. And uh, another one is that, you know, well, big boys don't cry. And uh, I'm going to tell you, that ranks right up there with, well, you know, real men don't eat quiche. And uh, to that, I just say, oh, really? Well, how about we change that to real men eat whatever they want without worrying about what others might think of them? Okay. And, um, and a lot of times, I have to say, you know, we cannot express our feelings any other way except for tears. You know, it's, we just get to that moment where we just, we cannot form the words. We just, we don't have the words. We just, we're overcome by the emotions. And when this occurs, I, I typically ask the client, you know, after they've composed themselves, you know, if those tears could talk, what would they say? Where are they saying this? What, what are they saying to you? What are they saying to me? So if those tears could talk, what would they say? Because tears do have a context. They have a story, a story that needs to be shared. They're just not without context. You know, there's something that is invoked in us in terms of just deep, deep, deep emotional uh, release. But have you ever noticed that there is this temptation to explain uh, why a person is crying or why a person is sad. Okay, I've seen this many times when people begin to cry or even to shed a few tears. You know that they often apologize for displaying emotions in front of others, and they just, you know, they they dab their eyes or they, you know, just are able to say a few words such as, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to do this in front of you, and um, you know, I just like again, I just try to reassure people like it's okay. You know, if something has touched you and tears are coming up, let them come. And I also ask permission from, you know, the person at that time, you know, if there are things that get touched in me and come up in me, you know, I want to have the same permission from you to be able to express my emotions through tears if, you know, if it, if it occurs. Okay. But um, it's also equally surprising that I've noticed how many times people have, let's say, ready-made or pat answers for anything, especially when seeing and hearing the strong emotions of others, which often make them uncomfortable. Okay, and uh, the classic example, you know, that we often find in in scripture is the story of Job, and uh, you know, Job was, as it was written, you know, was, he was considered a very righteous man, just loved God with all his heart, and um, you know, he prayed for his kids and hoped for the best for them, and uh, very doubt, uh, very devoted, I should say, uh, did not have any doubt in his faith whatsoever, and then Job enters a time in his life when he is starting to suffer tremendously, tremendously. He had tremendous loss of his family, of his property, uh, even of his health, just like one thing after another, just bam, bam, bam. It really started to hit him. And he was just so overcome with his suffering and pain that he just, he wept. He didn't know what else to do. He wept. 
And it's interesting as the story unfolds, his story, that his three friends uh, came to him. And they, too, were so overcome by what he had experienced and, and just seeing their friend in a certain condition that they, too, broke down and they wept with him. They empathized with him. You know, as the scripture says, you know, they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. You know, certainly a, you know, just a, a, a telltale sign that there's just a, a tremendous, tremendous outpouring of grief and sorrow. And they, you know, Scripture also says that they lasted about seven days, where they spent that seven days with him. And uh, they did that in silence. And they often commiserated with their friend in silence. However... Their silence did not last forever. And eventually, eventually, these three men gave a series of speeches to Job. It's Actually, it takes up the rest of the book. And the speeches of Job's three friends include many, shall we say, inaccuracies and pri- you know, primarily involving why God allows people to suffer, you know, because his friends were trying to figure this out too. But their overarching belief was that Job was suffering because he had done something wrong. I mean, after all, nobody would have suffered this much loss, this much pain, shed so many tears if they didn't deserve it. But that's where their friends were coming from. But we know, you know, you read the whole story, the understanding is like it had really nothing to do with that. Uh, Job did not do anything wrong. And here was a total shift in the understanding uh, back in the day that the more faithful you are, the more, um, uh, let's say, uh, devoted to God you are, that, you know, certainly you're not going to be spared any kind of, of suffering. In fact, you might even suffer for your faith, okay? And so his three friends just just repeatedly encouraged Job to, hey, just confess what you did and repent so that God will just leave you alone and you don't have to go through any of this suffering. And Job is like, well, what did I do? I don't, I don't know what I did wrong. You know, it has to be pointed out to me because I clearly do not know. And um, again, it, at the, toward the end of the book, um, you know, uh, God comes into the story, and uh, God pretty much tells Job's three friends that, uh, okay, you can go away now, uh, because you are way off base as to why my servant Job is is suffering. And uh, Job, Job was actually honored for his still devotion to God, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of shedding many, many tears. Well, in our house, uh, we have a small plaque that we we hang up, and it says, "Live to the point of tears." And I have to look at this saying as a, a point of meditation for me. Like, what does it mean to live to the point of tears? What is the passion? What is the compassion? What is the commitment? What is the uh, the moments when we come to our breaking point? You know, living to the fullest. So, live to the point of tears. And where crying is never a sign of weakness, but rather it's a reminder not to hide yourself from the world's problems, but rather engage people where they live. Celebrate with them, cry with them. 
engage people where they live. I mean, let's be honest. Have you ever been so overcome with an emotion that all you felt like doing was just sitting down and having a good cry? You know, just a deep, heavy, sobbing cry, whereby afterwards you felt completely drained and exhausted, and all you wanted to do was sleep. We've all been there. In fact, I remember seeing a research study which focused on the the strong emotions that are released with the shedding of tears. And it was an article uh, written by Dr. William Fry, um, and he was doing research uh, with Alzheimer's uh, patients in uh, Minneapolis. And uh, he and his team uh, had studied the chemical compound or the chemical makeup of tears. And uh, this was a report, like I said, back in the uh, probably the early 80s. And uh, that the, the tears they found, you know, stirred up by emotional, you know, just high, high, high uh, emotions contained very high levels of proteins and manganese that the normal teary fluid that protects and lubricates our eyes. And so strong emotions, you know, that are brought on by crying, you know, uh, but also seems to release this buildup tension and stress. And also, um, uh, Dr. Fry and his team, you know, the other researchers in this area have also noted that crying releases oxytocin and endorphins, which ease both physical and emotional pain. And oxytocin and endorphins are just wonderful uh, neurotransmitters. But again, you know, we our bodies already produce these things, but they are just how they are expressed, how they are uh, released whenever we have a good cry. Well, there was, um, speaking of, of history, there was uh, groundbreaking work by uh, Dr. Eric Linderman. Uh, he was at Massachusetts General Hospital in the 1940s, and he was known for treating people for ulcerative colitis. And, um, you know, just making simple observations and everything, he said that helping grieving patients uh, just readjust to the loss of a loved one. And, um, you know, just get to know his patients and they just, he found out that they recently had a loss and listened to their stories and so forth, but it was how the body was reacting, which he really paid attention to. And then about nine, 10 months later, uh, Linderman, you know, observed the grief reactions by people he was also treating and loved ones, uh, who had lost people in the Coconut Grove nightclub fire. And ironically, he saw the same ulcerative colitis symptoms from people who had lost loved ones in the fire, but were never able to grieve loved ones who died in the fire. And this really leads us into what is really important when it comes to our losses, you know, understanding the difference between our wounds and our scars. And uh, I've shared with this audience the story of the scar on my left thumb. And uh, I was looking at my thumb, you know, earlier today and, again, reminded of the story itself. And uh, for those of you who have never heard it I, before, I just ask for your indulgence here. I was uh, 17 at the time, and I was working on a mock roofing project. Um, and it was all designed to teach us kids, you know, students how to shingle a roof properly. 
before we get out on the job and, uh, you know, like you don't want to make a mistake because that could cost a lot of money. But anyway, um, we were each assigned a certain task. And my task was to cut smaller sections of shingles so they would fit at the end of each row. Okay. And it was about an hour before quitting time. And of course, as with most avoidable accidents, I was in a hurry to finish the job. You know, like, come on, let's get this done so we can clean up and let's go home. And with my straight edge in one hand and my utility knife in the other, I began to score the section that needed to be cut. Well, it was about the fourth pass uh, that my knife seemed to jump across the straight edge and right across my left thumb. And um, needless to say, I finished that day in the emergency room getting seven stitches for my haste. However, reflecting on that experience has taught me a lot about the natural progression of recovering from painful experiences. Because when I was cut, I experienced, you know, the excruciating pain of a fresh wound. I mean, the pain was just unbearable. But in the days that followed, whenever I accidentally bumped my thumb, even though it was stitched up and everything, the pain and the blood reminded me that healing was still a long way off. And now, decades and decades later, I'm still reminded of that day, not because of the pain, but because of the scar. And all of us have scars from previous wounds. You know, some are more obvious than others, such as a wound from, let's say, surgery or an accident. And there are other scars, however, that are not so obvious. You know, these scars resulting from, let's say, certain emotional and spiritual wounds are often kept hidden deep within our hearts and deep within our souls. I mean, very rarely do we permit others to touch these wounds because we've never healed from them. Some wounds are still fresh, even from 5, 10, 15, or more years ago. And in these incidences, uh, the scars that remain, um, uh, healing is still continuing. But uh, in other cases, you know, a scar has never formed because we've never uh, have allowed the healing process to take place because we're constantly poking at the wound or we're scratching open the metaphorical scab, you know, and we are reliving the painful memories all over again. And, you know, whenever we do that, you're going to hear your mother's voice that that's going to say to you, you know, leave it alone because it's never going to heal unless you stop picking at it. But what do we do? We keep picking at it. And, but, and, and as we're doing that, we still apply the temporary band-aids of, let's say, prescription or illegal drugs and alcohol, repression or denial or some other sedating relief. Because we don't want the pain. We also don't want the memory. But we have the pain in the memory. Because a scar has not formed. I mean, the, the same process could be said regarding finding healing from the emotional wounds of loss and grief. And yet there's a common misunderstanding that uh, once we have assimilated our losses, you know, we're going to go back to the, you know, where we were before the loss, you know, return to our original emotional and spiritual state or psychological state. 
But this return to the way things were does not happen because we are constantly shaped and changed by our losses. Because once we have experienced a loss, whatever it is, it could be moving because we, we got a good job somewhere else and we have to you know, leave the past behind us or family members and friends and so forth, or we say goodbye to a loved one, whatever it might be. Whenever we have experienced a loss, our outlook on life is forever altered by the grief we sustain. The reason for this is because our assumptions about life and the world in which we live have now been challenged, if not shattered. And we've been accustomed to the routines which define our daily experiences. We get comfortable. Come on, let's admit it. We get comfortable. We get used to the way things are. We are never, ever ready to say goodbye to a loved one, even if we see their death impending. And we're never going to see ourselves and others or the world the same as we once did because we're pulled into the task of trying to make sense out of new circumstances in light of the old. And yet, instead of assimilating our losses into our everyday lives, many people resist this healing by continuing to live in a prison of bitterness, which is reinforced by familiar or uh, familial patterns of abuse or familiar low self-esteem or feelings of unworthiness or feelings of contempt or jealousy or strife, whatever it could be. But instead of looking for the potential of how can we be made better by our losses, we allow bitterness to harden our hearts and keep others out, all the while cementing the anguish inside and hiding our tears. And the challenge then for us is to discover the courage to redefine ourselves in light of the pain and grief. But still, we're compelled to ask this question and search for the answer. You know, is this whole assimilation process of wanting to work through our losses and our pain, is this something that we're able to do on our own? Or do we need help from others? Yeah, we'll come back to that one. Well, you know, today, whenever I, I look at my thumb, I see more than just a scar, more than just a painful reminder of, you know, a time way back when. I also see a thumbprint, something we all have in common, yet no two are alike. You know, thumbprints are what identify us as unique, among other characteristics. And these prints are probably one of the most distinguishable parts of our bodies. I mean, hospitals record them as a means of identifying newborns and their mothers. And certain jobs require applicants to get fingerprinted prior to employment. And even people who have been arrested have their prints taken as a matter of legal record. And all in all, our fingerprints, our thumbprints can tell a lot about us. And so do our scars. You know, they, they identify what wounds we have suffered as a result of the past. Accidents, mistakes, surgeries, unfortunate mishaps of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and so forth. But, you know, the same thing could be said for our, our grief, our bereavement. And we all experience loss and grief throughout our lives. But just as no two thumbprints are alike, so too do no two people 
grieve in the same manner or shed tears the same way, or react similarly to parts of the loss that they are experiencing. And as a society, as I said earlier, you know, we're gotten better at this, you know, um, but still we have a long way to go. We still do not do well with bereavement. Um, We're getting there. We're getting there. And, In our losses, you know, there's still this tendency to believe that what has happened to us is just so exclusive that we forget about the other side of the thumb. That is, however, that change, loss, and death are universal. There are events we all faced simply because we're human. As universal as the events are, we can never minimize another's loss. It's still unique to them. However, we can certainly empathize with them because of the shared humanity. Well, there's an ancient story out there about a bereaved mother who had brought her dead child to a holy man to be healed. I mean, she was, he was located out of town, high up on a mountain, and um, you know she needed help to carry her son and so forth. But she finally found this holy man, and uh, she just fell at the holy man's feet with her son, and she begged the master to have pity on her and return her child to life. Well, to her surprise, the master agreed to do so, but only if she would first bring him a mustard seed from a house in her village where death had not been. Sounded simple enough. Initially, the woman was excited. Um, you know, she thought, surely there has to be at least one house where death had not visited at all. You know, and, and so she, you know, comes down the mountain just like, I can do this. I can find this. And so she, you know, arrived at the first house and <clears throat> knocked on the door and and asked if they had any mustard seeds for her. And uh, she was delighted when she heard that the the family inside had plenty of mustard seeds to give her. However, when she told them that the seed had to come from a household where death had not visited, uh, the family inside. Um, started to frown, and they told her that they buried their father the year before. And they were just deeply, deeply sorry. Well, disappointed but still hopeful, this woman moved to a second house and asked if, uh, you know, again, knocked on the door and asked the family inside if they could give her mustard seeds. And again, the family had plenty of seeds to give her. But when she heard that they also buried a loved one, She couldn't accept the seed. And so on and on and on and on, the woman went from house to house, searching for a family who had been spared from death. But to her dismay, she didn't find one. And eventually, she came to understand the wisdom of the master, that death comes to all. And so silently, she went back to the master, she returned to claim her child's body and eventually returned home to bury him in peace. 
You know, many years ago, I had met uh, Dr. Ken Doka. Um, he was, you know, if you know anything about uh, lost and grief literature, or even palliative care and grief, um, he's done extensive research in this area of hospice. And as we sat in his office at the College of New Rochelle in the Bronx, uh, we talked about the importance of rebuilding our faith and philosophical assumptions that have been challenged by our loss, by our grief. And what impressed me the most about our conversation was how he explained to me how most of us live our lives according to our assumptions, and how grief causes us to re-examine our core beliefs about how life ought to operate. You know, from when we were young, our lives are certainly built upon assumptions and expectations about, you know, how the world should work, or when and how God should act, or matters of faith and obedience, and what about rewards, what about punishment, and so on, and so on. Well, one of my favorite books, um, you know, besides The Alchemist, I've talked a long, long on this uh, radio show about The Alchemist. Uh, one of my other favorite books is about an ancient story that's told of a spiritual journey of an Indian man called Siddhartha, who lived during the time of the Buddha. And within Buddhism, there is a belief that nothing is fixed and permanent in this world. In other words, everything and everyone is subject to change. Or even as the Buddha taught, you know, that um, we are in this continuous becoming. Well, we refer to this uh, as impermanence. And if you ever sat beside a river and watched its flow, you get the idea. Because, you know, water runs from point to point and around rocks and fallen branches and finding the, the way of least resistant, or resistance, should say. And at the same time, the river is not one continuous and unified flow, you know, because the, the river of this moment is not going to be the same as the river of the next moment. And it's going to be different in the next moment and the next and the next. And this is where, you know, the saying comes from, you know, the ancient philosopher Heraclitus, that you cannot step into the same river twice, for the other waters are ever flowing onto you. And that is so true. And the same philosophy can be applied to our lives, that none of us remain the same throughout our years. Now, we may think that we're not changing, but we are, you know. From various stages in our lives, you know, from childhood to adulthood to old age, you know, we are just not the same at any given time. The child is not the same when he or she grows up and becomes a young adult, nor when he or she grows up and, and ages and becomes elderly. And while it is true that we live from moment to moment, we tend to forget that each moment leads to the next. Impermanence and change are, are just very much undeniable truths of our existence. Well, if you're looking for a very nice book to read this summer, may I recommend Joyce Rupp's Praying Our Goodbyes, 
a spiritual companion through life's losses and sorrows. Okay. Praying our goodbyes. And you just Google her last name, Rupp, R-U-P-P. And um, uh, what really got me hooked on, on this book was not just a title, um, but how she starts off the book in general. Because um, she notes that although we do it often, we're not very good at saying goodbye. And, you know, she, she goes on to explain that, you know, we typically say goodbye anywhere from 20 to 30 times a day. And these goodbyes can include saying goodbye to loved ones as they go off to school or work. You know, okay, goodbye. See you tonight. See you later. Or saying goodbye to people we meet at random, a grocery store or wherever, or even saying goodbye to another whom we've been talking to on the phone. Now, these goodbyes do not seem to trouble us, you know, because we always tell ourselves that, well, I'll see this person later, or I can always pick up the phone and and hear their voice one more time. But what about the goodbyes that do trouble us, such as our farewells to loved ones upon their death? You know, these goodbyes trouble us deeply because we may not be ready to come to the closure that the word means. We want more time, and we want to be in charge of when and where we take our leave. But you know, it's quite interesting that the original meaning of the word goodbye was never intended to be something permanent. You know, it's actually broken down, you know, from um, an old English word, uh, God be with ye. You know, God be with you, and you can hear the word goodbye in that. And so the original intention of the meaning of goodbye was, well, until we see each other again, God be with ye. Okay? And we even, you know, uh, churches have a familiar saying, a benediction, you know, that goes something very similar to it. It's like, you know, may, may the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent one from another. Same meaning, same understanding, but it's this concept of, you know, we're going to see each other again, but until that time, may you walk in peace and grace and may God keep you safe. Okay. So I always take comfort in that, that, um, you know, saying goodbye to a loved one, even though we always want more time with them, or we're just not ready to say goodbye, or we can't believe what had happened that we're going to see them again, that our goodbye was not a final goodbye. It's a, until we see each other again, God be with you, God be with me. Now, um, a key component to any kind of pain and the tears that we shed from pain, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, is loss and grief. Okay, and whenever we experience change in our lives, even the slightest change, like packing up and moving because we got a better job, or uh, let's say in another month or so, kids leaving for college again, or 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 something, whatever the transition is, uh, we also experience a degree of loss from what was once familiar, and this result is a grief reaction on some personal level. And so if there's anything that I could just impart to you this day is this concept, this mantra that has guided me very well. 
Change equals loss equals grief. Change equals loss equals grief. Now, the change or changes in our lives should not be viewed as something necessarily negative. In fact, some changes are for the better. You know, weddings, bar mitzvahs, confirmations, a new job, moving closer to family or moving clo- you know, further away from family, even having surgery to correct an illness or stave off, stave off um, a spreading disease. You know, th- this is more like transitional moments in our lives. However, all of these life experiences and others, as you know, they, they all have elements of both sorrow and loss and hopeful expectations in them. When we often think of events like, say, high school or even college graduation ceremonies as marking an ending, but it's not. Because commencement, as the name implies, also marks a beginning. You know, this beginning, you know, can be understood as turning a new page in our lives and new opportunities. Unfortunately, tension comes in with that when most people fail to recognize in dealing with many life-changing events, we have a deep desire to remain and enjoy the familiar. And even though we may recall our struggles and heartbreaking moments in, in high school or college or a, a job or whatever the situation is, you know, at other times we miss those days when our biggest concern was whether or not our friends and sweethearts would notice acne at a dance. Okay? But still, you know, on the heights of uh, expectancy, we cannot overlook the fact that we also need to grieve our loss of what once was. So whenever I counsel others who are struggling with symptoms related to their loss and grief, let's say like depression or anxiety, or just general negative feelings about life, sooner or later, the subject turns to loss. And more than just the death of a loved one, there are other losses we experience just as a result of changes that life demands of us. And in reflection on the clients who come to me, you know, I have to always ask, ask myself, what losses have been the most difficult for them? What losses have been the most difficult for me? How old were they when they had their first loss? How old was I when I had my first loss? What do you remember about it? How did they feel about it at the time? How did you feel about it at the time? How did I feel about it at the time? And what part of themselves did they lose? And how much of themselves do they wish to have back again? And so on and so forth. Well, you know, some people in the remote villages of China have a custom that whenever a woman is married, she is given a double-sided mirror by her mother. And when the groom arrives at her home to take his bride to come back with him and live with his family, she is told to look first at her face in the mirror as a reminder of her past, you know, who she was, where she has come from, because she's never to forget her family, her heritage. But yet, halfway on this journey to her husband's home, she's then told to turn the mirror over and again, look at her face. But this time, instead of remembering her her past, she is to see who she is, her present as well as the future, as a wife, as a mother. 
Now, while not necessarily from China, many of us often struggle with our own double-sided mirrors. We find it difficult to see ourselves in the present, let alone the future, because we have trouble getting beyond the past. And our wounds have a way of keeping us from turning the mirror over. And yet, just by understanding that, therein lies the healing from our losses. Can we see who we are yet to become? Can we see ourselves capable of healing, capable of living a life of wholeness and peace? And can we see ourselves as playing a part in life in which many, many more generations will come after us? Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you to join me uh, next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, for a, another broadcast of Reclaiming Authenticity. And until we, uh, let's say, talk to each other again or see each other again, God be with ye. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.